Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so today's episode is brought to you by Zencaster. And I remember back in the day where I was looking at putting together Zencaster, I was looking for a solution that would really help me in putting things together. And essentially, this is what allowed me to bring deal makers to life. I mean, basically, Zencaster, what it is, is an all-in-one solution where you just send the link to the person that you're looking to interview. Essentially, they would plug in their computer with their video, with the audio, and then basically you are good to go. You would just piece everything together, give it to your audio engineer, or even edit it yourself, and you are off to the races. Now, if you're looking at getting into podcasting, you should definitely check Zencaster out. And you could also get a 30% discount. And this is a discount code that you will be able to redeem by going into Zen, and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers and then number zero. And lastly, you know, I was very much blown away when I found out that investing in wine has been one of the best kept secrets amongst the ultra wealthy. And this is now not the case anymore. You know, I came across this solution, which is called VinoVest, and they are a great, great solution that allows you to diversify investing by implementing or including wines into your portfolio. I mean, take a look at this. Wine has one third of the volatility of the stock market, and yet it has outperformed the global equities market over the past 30 years with 10.6% annualized revenues. So it's a really good way to diversify your portfolio. And you could also get two months of free investing by just going into the Send and that is csnzebraen.ai forward slash dealmakers. And by just going there, you will be able to redeem your discount. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So, very exciting the entrepreneur that we have today joining us. Uh, I think that uh, we're going to be learning a lot about really getting to product market fit and then how to figure out the execution. But again, you know, as uh, as we like to always hear it, there's going to be a lot of uh, fundraising, a lot of building, a lot of uh, moments of being close to death uh, as a company. But I don't want to wait any longer. Let's welcome our guest today, Evan Bayer. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. So, Evan, so, so tell us a little bit about your upbringings. You were born on the floor of a farmhouse in Vermont. I mean, that, that has to be one of the very first individuals that I've, uh, at least in 2022, that I spoke with that uh, has gone through that experience. So how were your upbringings growing up? Tell us about it. I'll tell you, it, it's a great way to enter the world and uh, very traditional for a Vermonter. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I think that portends, I, I really grew up in the woods, like, you know, bathing in the pond in the summertime and um, uh, working on a real family farm, hard scrabble farm. So we had pigs, chickens, uh, cut our own firewood. And then uh, the big thing we did was make maple syrup, tap trees in the spring, uh, can the syrup, and then would deliver it to our local co-op for sale. And so sort of had like a traditional... Uh, very Id idyllic four-season farm, uh, which is also like not very profitable to be part of, but a, a really nice, nice way to grow up. 
So it sounds like you were outside, you know, quite a bit. I mean, how how the hell do you get into computers and, and technology? Um, I was fortunate that my parents are like polar opposites. So my dad uh, was very much a, a back to the roots, back to the earth uh, kind of guy, worked the farm, loves nature, etc. And my mom uh, was actually in publishing. So, you know, in the late 80s, like we had a Mac at home. And so I sort of had this dichotomy in my life where I might... Uh, get woken up at 3 a.m. to my dad going, Evan, the cows are out again. You know, and we run outside <laughs> and we put our boots on and like you chase the cows and then you'd get the grain and you sua sua and you get the cows to come back. And like, then I'd go back inside and like, you know, I'd ask my mom if I could go on the computer and play SimCity. That's amazing. She was super supportive of like giving me uh, those sort of technical outlets as well. At 18, you know, that's the time where you decide to leave the comfort zone of being there at home in the woods, and you decide to go and study mechanical engineering. But there's something interesting, an, an interesting event there that caused a shift into biology. So tell us about that. Yeah, so leaving, uh, yeah, I was very into computers growing up on the farm. You know, I was really tired of, like, birthing animals and, like, you know, all of the stuff that goes into the husbandry of being on a farm. And I wanted to be part of the future, part of technology, part of computer science, learn how jet engines work, et cetera. And uh, I went to Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute to do that. And I was going to do a dual degree in mechanical engineering uh, and product design and invention. And about halfway through my first year, I, I realized I'd made a massive mistake that the most advanced and beautiful technology in the world isn't a jet engine. It's a chicken, the thing I was trying to escape. And that biology was this beautifully complex uh, technology that we could use to live sustainably on on planet Earth. And that was also driven for me of just moving from a town of, you know, 2,000 people to a city of like 60,000 people and just being like, wow, this is how people live. We're screwed. So then let's let's talk about that moment where the idea of Ecovative, you know, comes to you and and what caused you to decide to jump on that wagon? So uh, Ecovative is the combination of an idea, which was sort of a combination of something I'd seen growing up in nature on the farm, mycelium growing on wood chips, and a problem statement I encountered at school, which was like, can we come up with a better, safer glue to kind of bind particles together? And I had this like, just this picture in my head of like, wait, could we grow a glue? Uh, and then a really important in individual in my life, uh, a gentleman by the name of Bert Swerzy, who was a, a professor at RPI. And he was the one who taught me about invention, inventorship, and entrepreneurship, and ultimately convinced me to start this business and was my first investor. So then, so then how do you secure that first investment? Because typically the first investment is the hardest. <laughs> well, uh, I should say, I, at this point in, in school, I teamed up with my, my close friend and collaborator and co-founder, Gavin. and. Uh, we were trying to figure that out. So we were graduating in spring semester. We had this sort of little puck of like mycelium composite. We'd now grown under our various dorm room beds. Uh, and we'd applied for some grants. And, and we actually both had jobs already, job offers. Uh, and we had um, uh, full ride scholarships to go back to school. And so we had this professor who was like, you guys got to drop out and start a company. And, you know, you got to quit your jobs. And Finally, Bert called me the day I was going to my job the first day. So I'd graduated. I'd go home. I told him I was going to do this in my like spare time. And when we got it far enough along, we'd raise money. And he's like, look, I found $5,000 in the school budget. If I get you $5,000, is that enough to live on for the summer for you and Gavin? I was like, I guess so. You know, I drove to work that day. I thought about it. And I quit when I showed up at the office. And then later that summer, he became our first investor. He invested about $25,000. 
Now, we're going to be talking a lot about mycelium. Uh, so yes. why don't we go ahead and we define first, especially for those that are, uh, you know, beginners at this, or is the first time that they hear about mycelium. So what what is mycelium? And then also, how do you guys, you know, go about it and, and the business model of the company today? Yeah, mycelium is what you would think of as the, like the root structure of a mushroom. So when you see a mushroom in the woods, whether it's coming out of the ground or growing on a tree, that's actually like a tiny portion of the mushroom's like total biomass, like its size and its life cycle. So uh, mycelium is this sort of underground network and it acts as a recycling system in nature. So like breaking down leaves and twigs to turn it into soil. Uh, it also acts as a network to like move nutrients and food and information even between roots of trees. Uh, and it also can help stabilize a, a forest floor much like roots could. Uh, and the way we use mycelium is actually as a material. We actually grow it into things. So then how does that translate to the business model and how you guys go about things and make money today? Well, the, you know, the, what I've learned over the years is there's like three critical elements we have to watch to have a successful business here. The first is we got to make sure we're solving really important problems to the world. So these are things that like you should fix, like plastic pollution or like industrial agriculture. Two, it really has to relate to cultural megatrends. So for things to get funded, especially in the early days, there has to be a degree of cultural mania around this. I believe this is referred to often as like product zeitgeist fit. And then the third one is you have to be really disciplined about a new technology and making sure that that technology, in this case, mycelium, is uniquely applicable in comparison to any other approach you would to solve this problem. Uh, that guarantees you're going to build a defensible and hopefully extremely profitable business, which is necessary to scale in capitalism, which is important if you want to address big problems. So then let's talk about capitalism. How much money have you guys raised for the business in total? We raised not a lot of money for a really long time. So I, I was really proud, and uh, my co-founder Gavin is very proud of this, that we, we, we bootstrapped in comparison, especially to some of our biotech uh, peers for a long time. So in our first three or four years, I think we raised just a couple million dollars. More recently, we've been scaling up plants around the world, and we raised about $110 million last year, and I think about 150 or 160 total. Wow. I mean, that's a, quite a, a bit of zeros there, Evan. So, uh, so good stuff. So, well, we're supposed to re return at 10x, so you know, <laughs> I, 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 I would prefer to raise less and do, do more with it. But, I no. hear you. I hear you. And, and, and what was that process like? Because obviously for, for something so innovative like this, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was not an easy journey to really educate people. It, it wasn't. And um, there were, you know, one, when I was starting, like, you know, I was just horrible at it because I'd never done it before, even with like great coaches and mentors. Um, and two, uh, one of the things that hurt us most in the beginning, I think, was uh, this not having this, maybe having some product market fit, but not having the product zeitgeist fit. So we were working on uh, single-use plastic uh, pollution in 2008 and 2009. This is like, wasn't really a thing. Like I'd go to customers and they'd be like, well, you know, styrofoam, you can recycle. I'd be like, no, you really can't. Um, and so like I had to do all this education and the same was the true with the investor class. Uh, now I'm kind of finding the opposite. So why, why is now the opposite? The difference is in some cases for, I mean, I'll, I'll use mushroom packaging, which was our first product and sort of our, our flagship as an example. It's a grown molded replacement for polystyrene. Kind of looks like styrofoam packaging you'd get in the mail but it's made from hemp and mycelium and we grow it in a couple days in a mold. Uh, when you're done using it, you can throw it in your garden and it's nutrients, it's not a pollutant, it falls out of your trash can because you were gonna landfill it and it ends up in the street and a car drives over it. You know what, that's fine, going back to nature. 
uh, and it'll even uh, marine compostable, so it'll break down in the ocean. These were attributes that no company was willing to assign monetary value to a decade ago. We made very few changes to this platform over the past decade, and sometime in the last like three or four years, it went from like a product push sale to like a massive market pull. And now we've been just trying to catch up with demand, uh, licensing folks around the world and helping them set up raw materials supply chains. Now, product market fit is everything. And I know that for you guys in 2018, you know, it was, um, it was a big year because that's where everything started to really come together. And that was a turning point. So what happened there that caused you guys to really rethink the way that you were doing things and how did that take you to where you are today? So we did something uh, that we really wanted to do, which was we actually, we brought our business to profitability and I'm proud of that. And uh, we did so as a pretty small team. So 30 or 40 individuals. Uh, and we had a lot of stuff jammed into the business. You know, we had a packaging component. We were developing this next generation leather. We're thinking about generate, de developing next generation uh, food-like uh, materials, which turned into our, um, our, our bacon. Uh, and uh, it was too much in one business. And so uh, there was sort of that tension going on. And then also a realization that to kind of tackle what we wanted to tackle, like we had to get bigger, you know, sort of like either become the biggest and the best or you lose in this world right now. And at that point, I met uh, an individual, uh, Jessica Harris, uh, who sort of helped me navigate uh, a change in the entire business. And we converted Ecovative to be just a material research platform. It already had the world's largest uh, mycelium IP portfolio, and we just doubled down on making it the world leader in mycelium research. So how do you grow mycelium? How do you grow it at scale? And then we started focusing on the market opportunities as separate things. Uh, and that led to us spinning out our first company, company My Forest Foods, uh, which is commercializing my bacon, which is just a phenomenal fungi-based bacon. So why did you decide to spin off the business versus doing it all under the same umbrella? Yeah, it's an interesting question because in some ways, like uh, you, you could say it's like cosmetic, but it's really proven to be powerful at driving focus among people and teams. Uh, and ultimately, it's the people that get the work done. Uh, and so what it's allowed the Ecovative team to do is get really, really clear on thinking about independent of market needs. How do you grow and manipulate mycelium? What is the best way to trigger these responses? What are the most efficient ways to manufacture it? So a very pure play focus that can then be spread across many different markets. And on the other side of the coin, in My Forest Foods, we've been able to attract like the best talent in the food industry, folks out of Cargill, folks that were at Stonyfield. Um, our board includes Gary Hirschberg, the founder of Stonyfield, uh, Stephen McDonald, the creator of Applegate, the premier uh, organic uh, pork brand that was eventually sold to Hormel for like a billion dollars. So like, I could have never created that as an internal team or division. And now it's its own entity that can like fully live and breathe food without worrying so much about the technological back end. And the technologies Ecovative has been developing for My Forest Food will take into another business, Forager, which will grow leather. And it's almost the same exact technologies applied to a different market. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Tell us a little bit about, because obviously in this case, I mean, it's been a tremendous journey. I mean, you've been at it now for close to 15 years. I mean, I can't even imagine in, in dog years, I mean, how many <laughs> how many years it will be. I mean, you you pushing this thing, it's unbelievable. But 15 years, I mean, Obviously, so many, so many experiences, so many near-death encounters. But tell us about how you had to be in order to continue pushing and to and to get things, you know, going to to where you are today. Because you had at least, you know, I mean, if I had to count them, probably more than five times where you almost <laughs> saw death. Uh, yes, that is very true. I guess you know you could just assume that I'm either insane or unreasonable as a starting point. <laughs> I've, there's definitely been a few moments where it was like pretty close to the like, you know, I think I should give up. But I have always kind of, I guess, had this attitude of like, I'm going to keep going until someone makes me stop. And, you know, that might be the bank coming and repossessing our factory. And I've had moments in my life with my co-founder, Gavin, where we personally guaranteed a quarter million dollar loan line of credit to the company. Uh, I can assure you, we didn't have any assets, <laughs> you know, and like been a week away from running out of cash when we were able to close a financing. So, yeah, wow. we've skated pretty close to the sun a few times. And I think that kind of attitude of, you know, it's not over till it's over. And, you know, you don't quit until someone makes you. And in your case, I mean, it seems that this this is this is your life. I mean, did, did, did you know that you were going to dedicate 15 years of your life or even more <laughs> to this when you started the journey? Uh, no, I actually thought... Uh, we would do some technological work for a year or two. A large installation company would come along and like license the technology and I'd go work on the next thing. So yes, that's a bit surprising. <laughs> and what do you think has happened? You know, because it seems that the last few years have been incredible growth for you guys, but it seems also that there has been more consciousness in the world that has created more demand around the type of stuff that you're all doing. Yeah, I think there's been two sort of two vectors going on here. One, uh, mycelium materials is really a new thing. So when I started working in 2006 and even earlier on this, there it's not like there was a field. Like there was just no documented anything on this. Like to the point, it's like, I don't think anyone ever did it ever. Uh, and we, we were able to file a bunch of patents for that reason. And it just takes, if you like look at the semiconductor, if you look at like new technologies, like it takes about 15 years to like actually get technologies to a point where they really work in the world. And so to my team's credit, I think there's been an incredible amount of learning and technological advancement uh, that we're now bearing the fruits of. And candidly, that came through like a, a whole bunch of massive failures along the way. 
The other thing is the world really changed. And I do think there is an awareness around like, hey, plastics in the environment are a real problem. They might even be causing health issues now. Like we can't eat or grow the number of animals we're growing if we're going to have a sustainable climate. And those are actually starting to change purchasing decisions in different generations. And those are creating these massive demand signals, which are literally changing the flow of capital in the public markets and now in the private markets. So give us an idea to, to all the people that are listening here. What is the, um, in terms of scope and size, I mean, how big is, is the company today? And, and I mean, anything that you can share in terms of numbers, uh, employee count, whatever that is. Yeah. So, I mean, just I'll tell you, like uh, millions of pounds of our products are produced worldwide. We're in the process of commissioning a, a second, like a single factory that'll be almost 3 million pounds of annual mycelium production. That'll be online this summer. Um, and we have about 100 people between uh, Ecovative and then our sister company, My Forest Foods, and about 450,000 square feet of um, research capability, research space, manufacturing space, and, and now bacon processing space. So that sounds like a lot of people. So how do you think about culture here? Uh, well, uh, <laughs> that's another thing that I evolved on. So when I started, I was really like, I just need some more bodies, um, which, <laughs> I, I mean, as you recognize, is an insane statement. Right. Uh, and now it's like the single most important thing to me. And both taking care of people is really important to me, uh, just like from a like a values perspective. And then aligning people, we're all good at stuff and we're all bad at stuff. And I think there's a lot of focus on like, you got to figure out like where you're weak and like improve those areas so you can be a well-rounded individual. And I'm really a fan of the opposite. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, we really try and figure out uh, employees' ultimate strengths. What do you just like, absolutely better at anyone in the world at and also like gives you tons of energy and align their roles with those strengths and to the degree they have weaknesses that we can get out of their role like yeah you got to compensate up to a level like you got to be able to like leave the house and wear pants if you're not a snappy dresser but like just get to the bare minimum you know and just keep focusing on your strengths and so um we really try and do that for the team uh it's a very like intense environment i think in any kind of startup but we try and keep it kind blame free and friendly and what have you done to be able to maintain, you know, that uh, that way of thinking and, and those fundamental pillars of the culture when, when you're growing so fast and, and adding more people? Well, uh, we have a phenomenal uh, people team. So uh, my chief people officer, Deb Antonelli, you know, I met over a decade ago. She first just sort of consulted for us. She had her own HR consultancy. I finally convinced her to come in-house. Uh, a few years ago, she's been like incredibly intentional around like culture and making sure we shepherd culture. And, you know, there are others on her team like Jen Town that are just like uh, her strength is just this warm, welcoming individual. And so everyone goes through this orientation process with her and has access to that. And then it's sort of like an attraction thing. You know, you keep attracting people uh, who are who are like that. And so uh, we've been fortunate on that basis. We've paid a lot of attention to it. Uh, we don't always get it right. Um, still making mistakes, like right now uh, in culture, I'll tell you. But we tr we're trying really hard, and we pay a lot of attention to it. And and we are in a fast growth period, and so it's a reminder to pay even more attention. So imagine you go to sleep tonight, Evan, and 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 you have the sleep of a lifetime. You know, you wake up in a world, let's say, five years later, and five years later, where the vision, you know, and the mission of the company you know, of Ecovative and let's say of My Forest Foods is, is fully realized. What does that world look like? So uh, there are mycelium factories around the globe that are just emitting clean water vapor, taking in waste products like wood chips, and they're converting them into things like uh, my bacon, 
which substitutes for pork uh, in a really both like, I think ethically important way, but also environmentally. Uh, there are factories that are taking in the same raw ingredients and using a different strain of mycelium to make leather-like materials, make plastic foams for shoes, plastics for cars. Um, and uh, all of these facilities, when we come up with the next product in the mycelium foundry, can just basically get a software update over the air. So we'll send a new strain of mycelium out to the factories. You don't have to rip them down. You don't have to retool them because the factory is the mycelium. And we could then start, say, making aerospace composites in those same plants. And so that's sort of my vision for how the whole manufactured and built world changes. It starts at the manufacturing. And then these materials, which are healthy when they're around humans or healthy for you to eat, um, at their end of their lives can just return to nature, just like everything we'd had, you know, until about 75 years ago. I love that. Now, imagine I put you into a time machine, Evan, and I take you back in time, you know, perhaps to to that moment that you were in school and you were not sure, you know, what was going to be next, you know, maybe, I don't know, starting a company. But imagine you had the opportunity of just having a sit down with that younger self and be able to give that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? <laughs> don't give up. <laughs> how do you think how do you think that has helped you because i'm sure that there's many instances that that you were thinking about giving up what what do you think you know avoided you from doing so i believe in what we're doing i believe fundamentally that biological technology is what we need to sort of live sustainably on spaceship earth as a society i, I love humans i love art and music and culture i don't tend to create a lot of that but i want to see it here and i want to see humans be able to do that not just for another hundred years but sort of in perpetuity and do it in a way that is sort of in harmony with the planet. And I think ultimately that's the purpose that drives me. It's it's not about getting a billion dollar valuation or going public or whatever. It's like seeing these things realized in the world. And I think even in your darkest moment of a rejection from an investor, I mean, they can't reject you on that basis. You know, that's inside of you. And obviously I, I can sense this passion, which is remarkable. Uh, I'm wondering if, as you're looking back and as they say, you know, things and especially ideas and, and, and companies and, and and things like that, they, they they take time to incubate, and and it's it's obviously the force you know that is initially built uh, by the founder, and then you know the team you know is the one that pushes everything uh, in full alignment. Uh, but in this case, you know, for you, as you're looking back, do you remember that moment perhaps that triggered that awareness and that love and that passion for what has come after? Yeah, I mean, I do think this goes all the way back to like uh, lying in my like uh, $200 a month apartment with five other roommates at RPI. You know, I had a 50 pound bag of oatmeal that year my dad sent me with that I ate three times a day and just pining to be back in Vermont, like to feel the, the, the grass between my toes and the sun on my face. And it was just this feeling of like, oh, man, like so this is not the future I want to live in, this sort of like industrialized, polluted city feeling. And so I think that crystallized something in me there. And on the engineering side, I mean, as as you've really transformed yourself as a leader, as a operator now, as an entrepreneur, has there been like, um, you know, I guess the first one that that, that comes to mind. I mean, I, I was just thinking here about really educating yourself, you no, know, and transforming yourself as the company is being built and the needs, you know, are also uh, transforming at the same at the same time. Has there been like a moment where, you know, it was like a massive impact? Because I see this a lot when you go from engineering to like the business side of things. Did you experience any type of challenging or how was that transition for you? 
I, well, I mean, I want to preface this by saying, like, I made a lot of mistakes, um, both in the business and with people, and yeah. I still do. I will say, well, two things on that. One, being a farmer is kind of entrepreneurial. So, like, yeah, you like, you know, you're tapping trees in the woods on snowshoes for eight hours, but like, you're also manufacturing a product like maple syrup, taking it to the store, doing the transaction, keeping track of like, uh, keeping track of all that. So it's a very entrepreneurial activity. So. I didn't know it growing up, but I think it's one of the best ways to be trained to be an entrepreneur is to grow up on a farm. You have to be very like creative, resilient, et cetera. And you do learn business. Uh, and then the other, for me at least, is I, I, I don't really, one of my big breakthroughs at RPI was just like, I figured out they kept trying to teach us the same thing, but they kept telling us it was other things. So like you learn electrical engineering and then they take you to teach you like uh, mechanical harmonic dampening and like they changed all the letters in the formula but it's the same formula and I kind of felt that way about business too which is like a, a company is a machine it's got interlocking parts a lot of them are humans the relationships between them are sort of like how they interact and you know you kind of have to you have to manage it and take care of it and so I just kept I, keep, I kind of tend to extract up, abstract up until everything looks the same and then go back down in and as we're talking about learning and and educating yourself as an entrepreneur, what would you say has been a book that you wish you would have read sooner? Hmm. Well, I'm really enjoying a book called Algorithms to Live By right now, um, which are sort of like rules of thumb you can use to make decisions around data. <laughs> the, the book I'm going to pitch is not available yet, but will be coming out in about a year. And it's called Don't Do Nonsense. And it's uh, is written by the uh, students of Bert Swerzy, who taught this class in Venture Studio at RPI. Uh, and it was all about how do you apply invention to solving the most important pressing problems in the world? And it, were these, it was these teachings that led Gavin and I to form Ecovative. So look for that coming out in about a year. It's called Don't Do Nonsense. Amazing. I wish I had it. I love it. So Evan, for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? You can find me on Twitter as Evan Bear and uh, evanbear.com if you want to like send me a question. Amazing. Well, Evan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.